0: My name is John, I'm one of the pastors with CA. Today the sermon is about a wedding party, 150 gallons of wine, and how Jesus put religion into retirement. We're going to be in the book of John chapter 2. It's also going to be on the screen for you to follow along. So this is the NIV translation of the word of God for you and for me today. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs, through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, this is the word of God. It's absolutely true, and it's been given to you and to me in love. I want to pray for us as we begin our time of studying the scriptures today. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done, that you would give us your word, that you would keep it for us, that we could learn from you. Lord, give us eyes to see what you're saying to us. Lord, unstop our ears that we could hear your voice. Give us a heart that understands. Holy Spirit, would you give us the courage to follow what it is that you're calling us to today? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm glad you're listening today. We're in the middle of a sermon series about the amazing stories of Jesus. And what we're doing here is trying to set up a series of pictures, a biography kinda, of the single most important person to live on the face of the earth. Whether you're a devoted follower of Jesus or maybe you feel far from God or you're skeptical and you're listening to a sermon, maybe, you, it doesn't matter, maybe you got dragged to church by your mama, it's impossible to deny the historical influence and culture-shaping clout of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Whether you believe in God or not, it's just plain sensible to try and understand who Jesus was. So however you look at it, this series is going to go a long way in helping you understand what Jesus' followers make of him. The question that you need to discern for yourself is, who is Jesus to you? In John 2, one of Jesus' closest friends records an amazing story that he witnessed while walking with Jesus. Now this is important, this isn't just a miracle. It's a miracle, but it's also a sign. John uses the word sign, or semeion, on purpose. It's different than the word miracle. He wants his readers to understand, it's as if he's saying, out of all of the many amazing, miraculous stories I could tell you about Jesus, this story is a sign, one that points beyond itself into a greater truth about who Jesus is and about what Christianity is all about. So this is important. So what really happened? Okay, Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. But this isn't just a wedding in the same way that you and me probably think about a wedding. This was a week-long party with lots of food, lots of dancing and wine. I'd wager uh, this kind of celebration is more similar to an annual camping trip with friends or going to a musical festival rather than the button-down afternoon weddings that we plan. And this is just an observation, but Jesus and his disciples are there celebrating, having a party, celebrating the beauty of marriage. What do you do with that? Does this alter the way that you see Jesus? Does the picture of the wedding feast Jesus work with your mold of him? Does it work with our serious Christianity? At the wedding feast, we encounter a problem. Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to him and says, the wine has run out. Is that familiar? Anybody else know a mom that's wondering where all the wine went? <laughs> I'm, only, I'm joking. It's actually likely that Mary was either helping with the wedding, preparations herself, or even in charge of the catering. The, the wine ran out. She's trying to fix it. She knows who Jesus is and what he's capable of, at least in part, and she lays the issue in front of him. There might be a lesson for some of us here, that we can approach God with everyday, menial difficulties that we face. She knows what Jesus is capable of, and simply lays the issue in front of him. And how does Jesus respond? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, you got got to think, did he just talk to his mother like that? Did he just address her like I think he did? Woman? Well, yes and no. Yes, woman is the right translation of the word gene. But it's probably better understood as dear woman. There's just no way Jesus is being misogynistic or something like that. Let me show you, okay? So, The only other time Jesus addresses his mother this way, using the word woman or dear woman, Genai, is at the cross upon his death. It says there, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near by the cross, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his home. Jesus is responding to his mother's comment in love, and he says, What does this have to do with me? Listen close. Listen close to what he says just after in verse 4. My hour has not yet come. Make a note of that because we're going to return to it. The exchange between Jesus and Mary is a little mysterious. But then Mary goes on and directs the servants to do whatever Jesus says. And in verse 6, our passage says that there were six water pots nearby. These would be used for Jewish purification rituals throughout the wedding feast. But Jesus does something different. He decides to take the water pots meant for ritual washing and he repurposes them as vessels of choice wine. He directs the servants to fill them with water and they complete filling them. John mentions right up to the brim. And then he tells them to take some, of the, take some to the master of the feast. The water had become wine. But not just any wine. It's the finest wine of the night. The master of the, call, master of the feast calls out to the bridegroom, and it almost feels like a play in my head. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, but, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Don't be tempted to read past this like it's some sort of religious myth. Look at the details. Jesus blesses this wedding and saves the bridegroom from a serious faux pas. Look, there's no liquor store, wine delivery. There's no John B. up the road from the reception. There's no ruse pub on the corner. No cat and fiddle. All of the guests, all of the family, all of the friends, the in-laws, the outlaws have gathered and the family didn't have enough. The wine had run out. It wasn't that long ago, I was officiating a wedding, and a similar thing happened. Actually, I think it was a couple kegs from Four Winds, too. And I was really looking forward to a beer, and by the time I showed up, there wasn't a drop left. And I remember being with the crowd of people who didn't get any. In the context of first century Cana, this is a total buzzkill. Reading up on this a little, I found out that it wasn't actually out of the norm for the bridegroom to get taken to court over this because it was part of his responsibility. But Jesus saves the, the bridegroom, the embarrassment, and on top of that, gifts him with choice wine. The other day, a couple of the staff and I were sitting together planning our services for this weekend, and we got to talking, adding up how much wine Jesus actually blessed this wedding with. Okay, so there's six water pots, Averaging 25 gallons each, 150 gallons, that's 63 cases of wine. That's, that's 756 bottles of wine. At 20 bucks a pop, that's over $15,000 in wine. If it's choice wine, if it's Quail's Gate or something like that, you could double that or even triple it. Jesus really blessed this wedding. And it's just an observation here, but... Is this how you see Jesus? As the wine giver? The God-man who cares for the simple, everyday issues of young newlyweds? Do you think of God this way, that he would care for you and your small issues? Jesus blessed this wedding in a big way, but why? Why this wedding? I mean, come on, if you're going to start a Messiah movement Why not start with something that matters more than some small-time wedding in Galilee, of all places? And, and, why does John include this as the first sign? In his purpose statement of the book, much later on, John writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name." So what is it about the story that shows us a sign that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Is there anything that stands out of the ordinary in this passage that we read? Look with me again at Jesus' kind of strange conversation with his mom in verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, "'They have no more wine.' Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, does it seem strange to you that Jesus contrasts, they have no more wine, with my hour has not yet come? When the wine gave out at the wedding feast, Jesus thought of his hour that awaited him, stating, My hour has not yet come. What does he mean by his hour? In the book of John, we see the word hour, or orah, used six other times. In chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20, 12, verse 23, and verse 27, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. And in all these settings, Jesus is referring to his crucifixion, the hour when he would give his life for the world. Later in John three sixteen, we see, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him Should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, watch this. John's going to use water pots as a symbol of the law, as a symbol of religion. Can you see this? John is showing us that when the wine was gone and the wedding feast was dying out, Jesus thought of his hour and what awaited him at the cross. And then he turned to the religious water pots meant for ceremonial cleansing. And he repurposed them as vessels of choice wine. 150 gallons of choice wine as a gift to the couple who couldn't afford enough wine for their family. Can you see how this is a signpost that points to Jesus' greater work? If you were just to go one page back in your Bible, you would read in in John 1, 16, for from Jesus fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth through jesus christ jesus took the dusty water pots of religion having to continually clean ourselves having to continually make sure we have everything in place before we come to god jesus took these sacred pots the tools of purification what they would use spiritually to cleanse themselves he took those water pots and turned them and repurposed them as vessels of new wine filled to the brim. And this spells the end of religious work and the joy, the beginning of joy of all of our longing. This is the first of Jesus' signs so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. It's true, Jesus did something extravagantly kind toward these newlyweds, but His actions stretch far beyond His kindness towards them. The reason Jesus repurposed the religious water pots is the same reason why in the next scene of this scripture He goes to the temple and says the temple is now obsolete. Jesus is putting religion into retirement. Remember what John said, For where the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. To fully understand this, we need to get a bigger picture of how Christians view the whole Bible, the Old and the New Testaments. And honestly, we don't have enough time to do that here. But what we can say is that God planned from all time that Christ would come and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the law was a part of this process. It's beautiful in its own way, but it's not enough in itself. It's not enough to justify us before God. Under Moses, the sacrificial system, the water pots for purifications, things like the temple, were given to God's people as a gift of his presence. But these ways, these ways come before the fullness of God, the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. I once heard it this way, I don't know if you've ever been able to see somebody grow up, or maybe you have kids of your own. My wife and I have two little girls, when you first see that ultrasound, there's this beautiful moment of joy, and you hear the heartbeats faster than you thought it would be, and the little blob on the screen, and, the, and it's a gift, and there's joy there, and then when they're one or two, and they're these little chubsters, and they're cute, and kind of squishy, and they're and needy. And then when they're, when they're four and five, they're more independent and strong-willed and, and funny. And they're a gift. And this is just like God's gift of grace. First in the promise to Abraham, that God would give grace to Abraham, and then in the law, in Moses, and now in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. But where we get it wrong, where we try to get religious, is when we try to go backward, It's natural for someone to go go through stages, but to take a five-year-old, to take my five-year-old and wish with all my heart that they were that little blob again on that ultrasound, it's wrong. It's broken thinking. And it's just like that with the law of Moses and the work of Jesus Christ. They're both a gift, but if we try to go back, if we try to make ourselves clean so God will love us, so he will look on us because of our effort, because of our religious actions, we can't. We can't go back, and, and honestly, we don't want to. The law cannot justify us. We are only justified, only made holy. We are only abiding in God when we are in Christ. And this is what Jesus is doing with the water pots. He's showing us that we don't need religious mechanisms anymore. There is new wine, and there's more than enough for everyone. And Jesus heard that, when Jesus heard that the wine had given out, He thought of his hour, and and he began to reveal his grace and truth to us. Three years later, from this wedding, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, at the hour, the of his crucifixion, Mark writes this, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again, listen, to the fruit of the vine, of the fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So what was happening that night at the wedding when the wine gave out? What was happening? One author put it this way, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. You see, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. The new has come. When you and I lay aside our religious tools and believe into Jesus, we trust in Jesus, we lay our lives on Jesus, we find rest from our work. We find our deepest rest and greatest joy in him. There's a few things that we need to hear today. and Some of you need to challenge your intensely religious view of Jesus. You need to think more deeply about this incarnation, about his incarnation and walking among us, that he went to parties, that he lived joyfully in spite of the sorrow of the world, in spite of the hour of his crucifixion. You need to challenge your sense of joy in this life. You need to hear these words that Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast sipping the coming sorrow so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all the world's sorrow sipping the coming joy. How are you going to live a joy-filled life that reflects the gift that you've received in the grace of Jesus Christ? Some of you today are watching me or you're listening to me and you feel far from God. You think God has expectations of perfection from you. That he's, wait, that he's waiting with some giant fly swatter in the sky just wanting and waiting to smack you into oblivion for the daily sin and, and all the missteps that you've made. And so maybe you're adding to your, your life some faith again in hopes to put you at ease with this feeling of God. You have started to listen sermons online, but you don't think you could ever be a part of a church community because you think, if only they knew who I really was, they would never accept me. It's not possible for anyone to love the real me. I don't even love myself, how could anyone else? Let alone a perfect God. But you gotta hear me today. There isn't enough purifying water in the world to cleanse anyone from their sin, you or me. And that's why Jesus came. That is why he gave his life and poured out his blood. A new covenant of free grace where God looks on you and he doesn't see John, He looks on me, he doesn't see John and his ego or or his addictions, he doesn't see my sin because I've been made new. He sees you in Christ, you're a new creation, and that truth sets you free because now God, who is the only judge that matters, has marked you exceedingly well. You can find rest. The criticism of others can't destroy you. The fear of death no longer haunts you. The love you long for is finally satisfied, but only in Him. Some of you today need need to believe that just like Mary and the newlyweds, God cares about your small battle that you're facing. You need to hear that God genuinely understands what it's like to be maligned and mistreated and wants you to come to Him. Put your challenge, however great, however small, put it at the feet of Jesus, lay it down, and just let him be who he will be. Trust him with the outcome. When Jesus saw the needs of the people around him, he looked at their religious system and retired it. He called for a new world order, a new covenant, and a new humanity through his blood. This is the message of Jesus turning water into wine. This is the first of his signs in the Gospel of John. It's an amazing story of Jesus Christ. And I wanna pray for you today. I wanna pray right now, Lord, I just thank you that you are working uh, right now in this person's life who's ever watching this. Holy Spirit, you're speaking to them your truth, you're guiding them into all truth and all grace that you are Jesus, you are Lord of their life. Father, I pray that you would help them to come to faith Help them to feel your grace. Help them to taste and see that you really are as good as you say you are. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would put courage inside of us, that we would be able to trust you and lay down our tools of religion, lay down our mechanisms of making ourselves look perfect, and we could just be who we are in front of you. We could lay down our problem at the foot of the cross, and trust in you, and trust in your judgment of us. Lord, I pray today for each one of us, I pray that you would encourage us as we go today that by your spirit you would empower us to love others out of that overflow of abiding in you, of living as a new creation in Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things only because of Jesus in his name, amen, amen. Bless you guys as you go today.